But if somebody doesn't want to reciprocate, fuck them, right? You don't owe those people your time. You don't owe those people your attention. You don't owe them a good faith conversation if they're just there to troll you or to try to undermine you or to try to you know, play debate club with you. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We are proud members of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out other uh, podcasts such as ours in the link in the show notes that we will provide. I'm your co-host, Scott Schmidt. I'm here alongside co-host and good buddy, Jeremy Appel, Mr. Appel. How the shit are you, buddy? I am okay. Yeah, I, hesitant. So. I, no, I would say I'm okay. Not good. Not bad. I'm Okay. <laughs> You know, the, the, the light is at the end of the tunnel. You know, I'm half vaccinated. Uh, stampede's happening, which I am going to stay the fuck away from. I was going to say, are you getting ready for Stampede? You're going to decorate your balcony yeah. and shit? Yeah, I'm getting my boots, my cowboy hat. Uh, no, um, I'm not. I um, so, Some personal news. I, uh, I went for a jog twice this week, so I'm getting back in shape. You're yogging now. Good for you. Yeah, I'm like wow. I'm like Rocky in Rocky too. I, I, I haven't. Sorry. No, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say I haven't see, actually seen Rocky too, but I would assume that at the beginning he gets back into shape. Man, I don't want to like get off onto an entire tangent this morning, but like seriously, you haven't seen the Rocky series? Like, I realize I'm. I've seen like the first one. Dozen or thirteen years old, maybe fourteen years older than you, but like this is sad. Well, I've seen Rocky. I've seen Rocky Balboa, I think. Oh, I've seen new, Creed. Who cares? That's ridiculous. Okay, we're, we're moving on. I'm not <laughs> having a conversation where you've seen all the new garbage ones, but you haven't seen like Club. You didn't like Creed? I never saw it because I don't care anymore. It's a it's like a childhood thing. Don't I thought it was childhood fine. By putting like senior citizen Sly Stallone on film. Was he not in that one? I don't even know. Uh, no, he's in Creed, but like he's not. The it's not a character. Rocky film if he's not in it. That doesn't make sense. Anyways, yeah, he's anyways, in it. It's my wife's birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Lori. Yeah, she's not listening, but and she, when this comes out, it'll be a little bit late, but it is. A, we'll try well, to make it a happy Pass birthday. the message on. I, I will for sure. I will for sure. So we got a pretty cool episode today. So I want to, we're going to just kind of jump into it now because that's enough banter between you and I, I think, anyways. Hey. Yeah. Officially. Officially we've <laughs> talked enough. I mean, it's the only time we see each other every week, so we gotta catch up a little bit, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but anyways, we want to get on. We got a, an amazing episode today, so let's let's get on with this. David Moskarop is a writer, academic, and political theorist. Actually, I've heard recently that he's more like an incredible rock star political commentator. 
who has words in the McLean's Magazine, is a contributing, column, contributing columnist for the Washington Post and host of the podcast Open for Debate. He's also the author of the book Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones. He has studied democratic deliberation, political decision-making and digital media and is currently killing it as a full-time freelancer. We got a whole lot we wanted to discuss with, the, with David today from his life and his work to hopefully a few current events. And so on that note, David, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thank you for having me. And can we start speaking of current events <laughs> really quickly? Rambo, I, I just feel the need to say this whenever yes. Rocky comes up. Rambo <laughs> has aged problematically in some ways, obviously, but Rambo, the first Rambo movie, is a good movie. It's on Netflix right now. I think a lot of people dismiss it because it's Stallone, but it's legit a good movie. Is that first blood. And first blood. Uh, it yeah, is pretty, folks need to go look. Yeah. No, the first Rambo is great. It's not the one that's uh, dedicated to the brave uh, Mujahideen. Mujahideen. <laughs> no, that was two. That was two, right? I haven't that seen that one. That surprises you at the end. It pops. <laughs> yeah, that, that's like like great. Rambo. Do you guys want to just talk about... Let's just talk about like, movies. Sly Stallone franchise movies. I absolutely, absolutely I, could. Growing I, up, we can get into my life as part of this later. But like growing up, I was raised by um, my grandmother in television, as a lot of kids who were the products of, of sort of single parent families, who were poor were. Uh, so my mom was working all the time trying to get through the day, and you know my grandma would take care of me from time to time. And but I would watch a lot of whatever I wanted because like you know the kids are. It's going to do their own thing right and i became obsessed with demolition man oh, demolition man dude, with, it was with like Wesley snipes I, and sandra bullocks i love Bullock. that movie I actually just watched so it on good. tv like two weeks ago again i haven't seen so it good. i know of it the so three good. shells oh man the <laughs> three we actually i'm not even kidding you so uh we get like uh seafood time time and they're like scallop shells right so stuff yeah. you get and after you just clean up the shells and you like decoratively put them on the back of your toilet best 90s joke <laughs> ever anyway and, and and i remember when i was in korea i uh, it came on and they change taco bell is it taco bell in the it's west taco taco bell yeah, they change it because they don't have it and it's like i think they changed it to what kfc or something really it's a hut yeah they change it from taco bell to something else and i was like that's a really weird edit and it's because they just have no idea what that is i actually they don't have taco when, bell in korea I don't think so. Well, I know they, they definitely don't have Taco Bell in North Korea, um, but um, <laughs> they're years, missing out. I'm a few years older than you, David, and I remember when that movie came out. It was humongous news. And it was the first time I'd really understood what product placement was. And it yes. was humongous news that Taco Bell had sort of secured some in some deal. They were the restaurant that was going to be featured. Like it cost them a shit ton of cash to be featured as the sort of only surviving restaurant in this post-apocalyptic. They wanted to be the dystopian police state. Absolutely. Restaurant. Where, where you yeah, like, like, yes, this is us. And this then every all the food just looks like fruity pebbles. <laughs> Such a I think food. I learned about product placement from Wayne's World. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I never talking about really... how they won't sell out and then yeah. That's true. I think, I think there's it's free. Pizza Hut, isn't it? Oh, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember Wayne's World so well. Like I remember the main things that you should remember, but I'm kind of embarrassed at myself. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, are, 
anybody that's tuned in, they're like, oh, David Moscroft, that's going to be really interesting talking about, <laughs> talking about 90s We're in here about democracy. Demolition, man. Yeah. Demolition, man. Like, it's a great show. Wesley Snipes. Oh, anyway. Okay. So let's move. Let's Didn't move Wesley on. Snipes go to prison for tax evasion? Yes. He's a badass, man. Blade he's movies, cool. too. I don't want to. We can oh, do this all day, but. Chris Christopherson. So good. Love that shit. <laughs> Anyway, all right. Mr. Mosscroft, thank you for coming to the show today. And uh, for those of us, uh, for those of our listeners who aren't quite sure who you are, we need to get the the life story a little bit. So can you backtrack and kind of throw together five or 10 minutes of uh, who you are and where you came from and why you're such a political or incredible rock star now? <laughs> that is a reference, by the way, to to a video that was recorded at a writers' fest. By the way, this isn't something I self-identify as. I would like people to know. <laughs> All right, we talked about that before the show. We didn't actually mention that. I, yeah, I just I, I, I self-identify as yeah. I, I self-identify as trying to get through the day. Like when people are like, who are you? I'm like, I'm just trying to get through the day. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I am uh, by by birth. Uh, uh, from Peterborough and an 80s child and the the product of a uh, uh, like as I mentioned earlier a single mother uh, with a couple of kids and so I grew up in Peterborough and uh, left Peterborough as soon as I could which is to say once I graduated high school and I did my undergrad work and a master's at the University of Ottawa and then back to Korea I went to Korea to teach English for a couple of years 18 months I guess in uh, post-masters and then went to do a PhD at UBC in poli-sci and that's why I worked on political theory. And then I produced my book, uh, which is a which was really the book is meant to be read by normal people. Uh, but it was my doctoral work about political decision making, the psychology of democratic deliberation, and all that stuff that I took and committed the ultimate academic, the cardinal sin of academia, which is turned it into a book that people would read, which a lot of academics either don't do and or look down on. So uh, I produced that book. It came out a couple of years ago now. It's still available now, wherever fine books are sold, a hard copy and digital. And uh, that was my attempt to, to try to write a democracy book that, that people who live in a democracy could access. <laughs> because you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, by how many books about democracy are utterly impenetrable. And uh, then I, you know, academia is a bit of a wasteland. I tooled around in academia for a while, did a couple of postdocs, SFU, U of O, uh, with great folks, and I really appreciated it. But it wasn't for me. And so this year I decided to go full-time freelance as of uh, December, January this year. Because what better time to strike out on a risky venture than the midst of a plague? Right? Absolutely. Well, I know what went that. out. Um, yeah, went out. <laughs> But um, for for those who may not know, uh, like me, what is a postdoc? So yeah, academia, like I said, not just a wasteland, but utterly uh, impenetrable to uh, to not just to folks on the outside, but also folks on the inside too. Like when I started my PhD between us, you know, and, and listeners and whoever ever comes across this, I didn't really know what a PhD was. <laughs> In the sense, I didn't know what the components were. I knew you had to write a dissertation and whatever. I'm like, I don't know how this works. And, uh, you know, you figure it out on the job. But I, the, the postdoc is this, this like, let's be frank, absurd thing that has, has come about that bridges you typically from your doctoral work into a, an academic position. And so you are technically now no longer a student but it feels an awful lot like you're a student. And so you graduate from your PhD, you go do this postdoc and it's meant to be 
a period of research and writing that bridges you into the academic world fully. It, it's a bit like, you know, grade 13 in Ontario used to be, except for, you know, less useful. And it uh, pays poorly, typically. <laughs> and, it's, and in many cases, hard to get and extracts labor from folks even more so than, than the PhD before it. And it's a bit of a grift. That's, that sounds, I think, that maybe not the technical right. term. but Well, I mean, some would say academia writ large is uh, a grift. A grift. <laughs> I said, you know, I was saying this yesterday to a couple of guys I was doing some work with, like, it is the ultimate grift. And that's not to say that there aren't extraordinary researchers doing extraordinary work, because there absolutely is. I mean, I, I've been privileged to know them and work with them and learn from their work. There's a lot of great stuff. But the the amount of, of absolute absurdity and nonsense and gatekeeping uh, and institutional conservatism, people always talk about universities as hotbed radical, hotbeds of radicalism, like the institutions are deeply conservative. Uh, complicit in in all kinds of deeply problematic things, including, by the way, colonialism. And in, Alber so in Alberta, we have conversations about whether there's a conservative bias or a bias against conservatives in universities. So I wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's everywhere, right? Because it's promulgated by like PragerU and all these yeah. other uh, astroturf uh enterprises but yes david you're one of the good ones when i say academia is a grift i mean like leslin lewis has a phd in international law and uh so they're just uh, giving a moat is what jeremy said well yeah if you pay them <laughs> if, if you I have, pay, sorry i know nothing about leslin lewis's um uh research or or her work i i don't um uh, i know nothing about her academic background and so but I'll, i will say this generally about PhD programs, if you are committed to grinding it out, you can get a PhD, right? Like it's not, people are sort of like, these PhDs, uh, they, they must be different than us. I'm like, yeah, they paid. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're paying for a PhD, you're doing it wrong. And this is another deeply problematic part of grad school, but uh, because it's so expensive and, and it ought to be funded whenever it exists. But if you, if you choose to grind it out, you can get one. And, and that's what separates PhDs from everyone else. They chose to do this to themselves and chose to keep doing it to themselves. Yeah, like I got a master's degree um, and it became very apparent to me that if, you, if you'll pay the money or you do the work to, you know, the, the you know, research assistant or TA work and you're willing to just write whatever and have your ideas constantly picked apart, like they're not gonna they're you're not gonna fail right you're gonna you get won't. A's. you're gonna get straight a's like i in in, in at, at least in the master's program i was in the was, grades are all in the 80s right yeah like you, you get to grad school and they they still grade you but the grade scale has changed and everyone's getting 80s you're like what is the point of this <laughs> right yeah it is it is it makes no sense and, and then they grade you in a phd and i'm like like to what end you take a course in your PhD, you get a grade. I'm like, what? Is, I'm going to apply to a super PhD when this is done, and my grades need to be up. Right. That you know, my employer is going to look at my grades when I'm 30. 
like <laughs> it's just because we have no conception of how to do this stuff in more creative and meaningful ways so we just default to trying to use these quote-unquote you know scientific measures these objective measures these rubric measures and it's it's often comically absurd and and one thing i was thinking about phds is i mean again speaking generally it, it stuns me but doesn't maybe surprise me the degree to which these we, we graduate phds in humanities even political science philosophy who sort of understand nothing about power when the stuff they're ostensibly studying is, is fundamentally about power and i think anyone who comes out of a phd and doesn't get the, the dynamics of political economic power uh should ask for their money back I think it's, it's such a joke but it's common and i see it all the time and it drives me bananas so so we're getting into the crux of like what were like the things that you're interested in we glossed over like you you raced through your life to university and like record speed so i want to talk i want to ask you quickly you glossed over two things i want to clarify so you said you wanted to get out of peterborough so i want to ask you what what made you want to leave peterborough so bad and the other thing is you don't just do what you did in school because like you spun a you know opened a page and closed your eyes and that's what you picked like what made you interested in this in the first place to be uh where we're talking about this kind of thing I wanted out of Peterborough because it was stifling and there, there's a lot of charming bits about Peterborough. There are things that I am nostalgic for. My family's mostly left, so I don't go back much, but I, I you know, do go back, have gone back and enjoyed it. I have friends there still. And, but growing up, there was no diver There was very little diversity and you, you certainly didn't see it at my school. I went to a Catholic high school and the, it was socially repressive. It was politically conservative, you know, a best centrist, but, but typically had these sort of deep conservative undertones. It's a bit of a weird town because it's uh, once a retirement town, it has a huge rural influence, but also there's Trent University, which is extraordinarily progressive <laughs> and which balances it a bit, but also creates a kind of like townies versus uni kids thing that that's that's palpable and i just wanted to go you know see more of the world and, and mix it up because i felt like there was a lot more to learn and a lot more to experience and other folks to meet and so on and so you know but that said then i went to the university of ottawa <laughs> you really i did you really got a long way away <clears throat> Exactly. It's like my imagination was still, which a lot of Peterborough kids did, by the way, like there was, it was far enough away from home that it was outside of Peterborough, but you could like drive back for Thanksgiving. Right. And right. so it, my imagination still hadn't quite escaped the, the orbit. And it was only later that I went to Korea because I'd met people in, in, in Ottawa who were like, you should do some weird stuff, some new stuff, some exciting stuff. You know, so I went to Korea, I did the Mongol rally, we drove from London to Ulaanbaatar. I went, you know, I did my PhD in Vancouver, and I you know, traveled a bunch and so on and so forth. So it was that sort of period of, of slowly meeting new people coming in contact with new ideas, because I was a liberal when I was young, like right up until my kind of mid early mid university days, I was a, well, first of all, a, a large L liberal, and then a small L liberal, and a Catholic until like my early to mid 20s. And that's because I, I was a product of my environment. And, and then later I kind of, that was, that was it for me. 
and I escaped it. And so that was a story of, of wanting out of Peterborough and, and getting out of Peterborough. But the, the actual academic thing is really, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I, I could go back and tell you a, a narrative that I think makes sense, but I don't know for sure. And the narrative would go something like, I was, I fell in love with learning when I was young. I just, I, I enjoyed it. I read everything I could read. It's such a cliche, but I did. I had a couple of great teachers who taught me world history, who taught me Canadian history, who taught me philosophy, who taught me political science. I was lucky that my high school had these courses, which not a lot of schools do. And I could learn this stuff. I, you know, world affairs. I remember one of my sort of first critical thoughts going through high school was, was from a world issues teacher who criticized uh, this, you know, the, the American hegemony who criticized the war in Iraq, both of them, uh, who criticized, um, you know, the state of Israel as a state and so on and so forth. Uh -oh. And, and I, yeah, he's, I, I, he's retired now, so he's good, but, uh, you know, I, it, it was a, an awakening and I, I can remember sitting in, in history class, world history class and, you know, crack open the history book and being enthralled with these stories and then going downtown to a coffee shop at like 16 and just sitting at the back of the coffee shop all day with this book and a coffee and a snickerdoodle cookie and just getting lost in it. And, and maybe it was a form of escapism because it was rough growing up poor in Peterborough in the, in the 90s and early, in, in early 2000s, but it, it worked. And then once I went away to university, I just sort of further fell in, into, became enamored with learning. In fact, this, is, this, is, this comes back around to, to leaving academia. I fell, it's such a hokey cliche, but I fell in love with learning things. I fundamentally was just curious and interested and excited by ideas and by, uh, by events, by stories. And I went ahead and I just dove into it. And it was during that undergrad years, I thought, well, I wanna do more of this. And a master's is a great way to do that. And a PhD is a great way to do that even more. And when I lived in Korea between my MA and my PhD, I spent more time reading and learning than I did during my master's on my own dime and my own time because I just wanted to. But once I started the PhD, I was like, holy shit, that's, this is not that. It changes. It becomes about production. It becomes a mill. It becomes a competition against people who should be your interlocutors. And it becomes a race to the bottom. And that's what sort of publisher parish represents, especially in a marketplace that is so underfunded. And I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, this isn't, this isn't what, this isn't about learning. This isn't about curiosity. This isn't about knowledge anymore. This is about grinding it out. And that sucks and I'm out. And so that's how that whole story sort of ties together. So where are you based these days? Where are you living? I'm in Ottawa. So you uh, stayed in Ottawa. So you're like, yeah. you're really like, you're just like, I want to keep, I want to stay an arm's length of Peterborough, right? Like, I want to leave. Yes. I was just looking at, I came here because to do the postdoc and I did a, a postdoc with a, a Elizabeth Dubois who does digital work at the University of Ottawa. And she's like, she's extraordinary. She's a great example of, of a sort of contemporary academic who does good research work, who's a really gifted teacher and mentor, but who also does media work and sort of like gray literature work. So stuff between academia and the public and can do public commentary. And so she's a good example of the sort of academic that I think uh, brings uh, honor, no joke, honor to the, to the profession. And so I came here to do that, but then it ended. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just stuck here because this is where I'd come to do it. And I've been looking at apartments in Vancouver which if 
if you're depressed and anxious and tired <laughs> during a pandemic, I would say this is maybe like a maybe for you. <laughs> right, right. Like maybe consider waiting. Sorry, David, how old are you? I'm a Sprite 37. Okay. I'm pretty old. Yeah, I was worried that you were like what my the... age and then I, because I, I'm I'm like 30 what and I, I'm, I'm just insecure now because I watched the most recent Bo Burnham special. He and, has a new one because my yeah, wife and I were just talking about how he needs uh, to do a new one. Oh yeah, it's he. It's his like pandemic special. It's great, but he's Is my it on age. Netflix. Yeah, dude, that's good. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's seriously going to be Lori's fucking best birthday gift. Yeah, he's great, but he's my age, and I'm just like, wow, he's so much more accomplished than me. So uh, I'm glad you are slightly older than me, David. I, I feel that same way about people all the time too, despite the fact that I don't, I, I don't love thinking that way, but I do all the time. And uh, especially since I'm supposed to be writing another book right now and I'm not, I'm not, well, don't, I'm giving away all the things I'm not meant to say to my agent. Uh, I am. It's going really well. Book finished. <laughs> What's the book about? Well, I've written two actually. I've written a, that's not true. I've written one and I've written a, a bit of another the uh, the first one was a novel because I wanted to see if I could write a novel. So that's actually done and shipped off to the, my agent, and we're going to see where that goes. And the second, it was a book I thought of years ago about a risk assessment of threats to humankind. And I pitched it and was working on it, and then the pandemic hit, and then two things happened. I couldn't travel to do the work required, and everybody started writing that book. <laughs> it's like, well... All right, I don't want to do it anymore. So now I've got this two chapters of a, of a book on existential threats to humanity that I got to sort of figure out what to do with, and I don't I don't know what I'm gonna do. How do you uh, conceive of a book like I, you know it's something that I've always thought about doing, but I you know don't even know where to start. Like how how did you? Um, you know, I guess we can talk about your um, your first book, but how, how do you sort of get into that process? I'm a big fan of just letting things happen and iterating. I'm not, I don't love grand planning. I find it is often maybe good for brainstorming, but typically setting yourself up for, for disappointment. I like loose planning, but mostly being open to things happening and going and riffing off that has been how I approach things. And so the the, the pandemic book was, uh, or, or the, the disaster book idea was a product of me sort of looking around every day, reading the news and be like, holy shit, there's a lot of real threats to humankind. And they're not necessarily what we think they are. They are not going to hit us the way we think they will. They're going to hit some folks differently exactly the people you think, by the way, the same people are always marginalized structurally. And we got to wrap our heads around that. But then I started thinking, well, you know, we've always been worried about disasters. We have a long history of being terrified of, of, uh, of our world. And so I thought, well, what about a book that was travel-based where I would go around and visit all of these places? It was political. I would do a critical analysis of what the threats were and what they meant to disparate groups and was also rooted in the history of obsession with disaster, which goes back to fucking Gilgamesh. You know, it's not a new thing. And that was where the book came from. I just sort of spun it out from that. And the first book was someone called me up and said, I'm an acquisitions editor, a friend of mine. 
do you want to write a book? And I said, uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds fun. I wanted to do it for a while. How about this dissertation that I would love to turn into a real people's book? And she said, that sounds great. And I wrote it. <laughs> that was not what I would recommend to people. Don't sit around waiting for someone to call you. You know, you can we just do. give the listeners an idea? Uh, I just want to make sure the listeners know uh, the Too Dumb for Democracy uh, book that you wrote. That was your first, Why We Make Bad Decisions, How We Can Make Better Ones. You talk about how that was basically your dissertation turned into a book. Um, yeah. Can we just give the synopsis of the book? Because it's it's essentially like, like you're not just talking about um, political decisions like that that are made at a political level. You're talking about, this, the book is about like us as individuals going through our day making poor decisions right yeah it's the old Dete <laughs> fabula narrator the book is about the book is about you the story is about you it's about us and it is about human capacity to make political decisions and we have this idea that's sort of comes from the enlightenment has been borne out by technocracy uh, in subsequent years that human beings are rational sort of dispassionate, calculative machines that take inputs from the world and, and put out, per, you know, purely thought out outputs. And even when we say, well, actually that's not how it works. We're kind of emotional or rational. We're usually thinking of someone else <laughs> and not ourselves. And I wrote the book to say, no, no, this is all of us. And the, the, title is you know too dumb for democracy question mark and the and the affectation is is that is the question which is to say we aren't right like we answer in the negative we're, we're definitely not too dumb for democracy quote unquote but we have these psychological tendencies that get exploited we have an environment and institutions that that uh, are exploited to produce bad decisions quote unquote and bad decisions I'm talking about, sort of inconsistent, irrational, erroneous, uh, purely emotional, uh, emotionally based, prejudicial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Decisions that if we knew better, we wouldn't make. And my argument is it doesn't have to be this way. We could do better. We could, we could approximate those sort of enlightenment ideal decisions while also respecting the fact that we're fundamentally communal and emotional beings, so not you know, fully going in on the, uh, the enlightenment ideal. We could do that if we wanted to, but we need to change our political institutions and we need to redistribute resources. Because if you look at political decision-making and you abstract it from power, then you're doing it wrong, right? Like it's about power, it's about resources, it's about institutions. And my argument is we need to change those because we need a more participatory representative democracy in which we all have power to make decisions and to self-determine, which we don't have right now, right? We have functionally oligopoly right now. And this is a pushback against that. And sort of, I guess, through, like, was that sort of your uh, entry point into more journalism than academic stuff, taking this dissertation of yours? And uh, I don't want to say dumbing it down, but making it more palatable for regular people yeah i like thinking of it as as making it accessible right and you know i grew up in in like i said a working class family uh my dad who 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 died in 2014 but when he was he was around he was a mechanic he changed tires for years and years and years for my grandfather and actually worked in the same tire shop that i would later work in 
uh, but then later became a mechanic on on uh, big rigs. Uh, and you know, he later taught uh, mechanics at a college here in Ontario. And I didn't understand what he was saying <laughs> when he would talk about engines, uh, but he could, but he he could make it accept when he was talking with his colleagues. But he could make it accessible to me, right? Like he could explain how these things work. And when he taught me how to drive a stick, and he explained how the system worked, and I was like, holy shit! I, I got better at driving standard because my dad explained how the how the clutch system worked, right? And then made that accessible. And so, you know, I like to think of 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 good humanities writers as people who can take jargon and things that they would speak about differently with their colleagues and make it accessible for people to whom it's relevant, but who don't have time or inclination or education around the particular jargon. And to me, that's a, that's a good writer. But that, but that wasn't how I got into the journalism stuff. The journalism stuff started way back. I, th I think the first piece I ever wrote was about the Vancouver riots after the Stanley Cup and how they were a sort of symbol of privilege. And I wrote that for open file, which was a great community journalism outlet uh, ahead of its time. And because I was just interested in it. You know, I had, I had been on the student newspaper at the U of O at the Fulcrum as the arts and culture. I was the worst arts and culture editor the Fulcrum ever had because I only read, wanted to write about books and politics and like Bella Fleck. <laughs> and so, but so I, I sort of learned some skills there, but then later decided in my uh, my graduate school days, I was going to pursue it a little more. And then a friend of mine said one day, I was like deeply depressed for, for a period of time. I was just like literally dragging my ass across the floor. I just couldn't, you know, get it together. And he, I was staying with him and we were sort of hanging out and he was like, why don't you try writing something? Cause we, when we lived in Korea, we had created a website and a blog about travel. He's like, why don't you pitch the Ottawa Citizen? I know somebody there. And so I started pitching op-eds to the Ottawa Citizen. And Kate Hartfield and, and uh, David Watson, I think it was, were the editors at the time. And they took chances on me. And so I started writing stuff for the Ottawa Citizen. I was like, holy shit, I love this. And that was the beginning of it. And I, then I just didn't stop. And so I kept writing op-eds. And then later it was, you know, the National Post and one in the Globe. And then it was... Uh, a series of pieces in McLean's and all of a sudden it was the Washington Post. It was sort of snowballed. And it, it sort of just built out from that initial inclination to just want to write and to, to sort of get through the day and to get through my own head. And, I, and then I fell in love with it. And, but I caught some shit for it because when I was doing my PhD, there were some senior professors and academics who would look at me and, and sort of say, who the fuck are you to be doing this? <laughs> It's the gatekeeping, right? Mm -hmm. And I would start, then I started doing media commentary. You know, CBC would call me up or, or Punjabi. I did a bunch of Punjabi radio for a period of time. And uh, it sort of randomly, they said like, do you want to come on? I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And then we built a bit of a relationship for a period of time and they were fantastic. Uh, you know, the, the local green station, the Rogers stations I would do. But then they would, these senior academics were like, you don't have a PhD, like, who are you to be? doing media commentary on this stuff. And the more I heard that, the more I was like, well, I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do, do the shit out of this. Yeah. And uh, before I knew it, I was more of a journalist than an academic. Uh, it, it just had, the, the ratio had changed and the degree to which I enjoyed journalism. I mean, I'm not calling political commentary journalism, I'm talking more about the writing. 
but uh, media work, I should say. I just enjoyed it far more than academia. And so it was obvious to me that it was, you know, it, it was time to go, but it, it developed organically out of an impulse just to write. And, and then of course, I, uh, I got to where I am the way that a lot of people do, uh, just sort of by bumbling my way through and getting lucky, right? You know, that old like Picasso line that, uh, I remember Christopher Pratt, the, the other one, not the, not, not the, the Jurassic guardian World of the galaxy. <laughs> You know the uh, the Newfoundland uh, artist, and and by the way, the uh, the uh, designer, the artist behind the Newfoundland Labrador flag, I interviewed him in undergrad because he had a show at the National Gallery, and, and he he's such a, a wonderful artist. His his stuff is utterly beautiful. It, it reminds me of um, uh, sort of um, you know, like it's got like an Alex Colville thing and a Jean Paul Lemieux thing and a bit of like a little group of seventy thing going on. And it's, it's haunting and beautiful and stunning. And I interviewed him sitting in the National Gallery of Canada in the, in the middle of the, of the show while people like walked by. They, had no, they were looking at this guy's paintings and we were sitting on the bench and nobody had any idea that it was like some punk kid, student journalist sitting there with this legendary painter <laughs> whose stuff they were there to see. And he said to me, you know, when luck finds you, it should find you at work. And that was you know a, he built that off of an old picasso line i was like holy shit that's maybe the smartest thing i've ever heard right it's like you've got to just do the work and then stuff will come along and you've got to capitalize on that that opportunity and then make it work right and if you look at neil gaiman's got a great thing called the make good art speech which i highly recommend there's a video of it and you can pick up a cool illustrated book of it too and he says you know freelancers get and keep work for three reasons they deliver good stuff they deliver it on time and people like them. And usually two out of three is good enough. And those, the, those, that combination has been really the, the story of how I got to where I was. And, and how, specifically, how do you wind up with the writing for the Washington Post? Stuff happens in the weirdest ways. And so when people come to me for advice, I'm always like, I can't really tell you what to do but I can connect you with people, right? Like I can help you write a pitch. I can help you think through some ideas. I can't give you a blueprint for becoming a columnist, but I can, uh, but I can give you some tips on how to do good work and how to connect with people because that's how you do the stuff, right? That's how you become something in this day and age in a lot of spaces because it's a hustle. You do good work, you do it on time, you're nice to people and respectful of people uh, and you take your chance when it, when it comes up. And I was in Vancouver and I saw a tweet from a guy saying, you know, the post is looking for writers. I pitched them, nothing. <laughs> I wrote a piece, pitched it to them, it didn't happen. Uh, I pitched them again later. And the, my editor was like, this looks good, let's do it. And so I wrote for him. He's still my editor. He's, he's one of the best editors I've, I've ever had. I absolutely adore him, Eli Lopez. And uh, I do a couple of pieces and eventually he's like, this is great stuff. Do you want a contract to become a contributing columnist? Because at the time I was sort of freelancing for them pitching here and there. I was doing McLean's at the same time. And I said, uh, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> pretty good newspaper uh, I think that's uh that would be a, an absolute privilege and that was it and it was really like I said it was it was an example of how luck finding you at work works and 
and also PS being extremely online because <laughs> right? I just was there to see the tweet and then that was it and, and here I am now one and you know it's funny is, is I've had a couple of pieces that were successful in the last couple of years like particularly successful and oh, normal yes. people the uh, Doug yeah. Ford must resign was uh, the Doug Ford asshole. one yeah the Doug Ford one was the big one. And then last year I, I talked to Dr. Yvonne Sue, who is a friend of mine and, a, and an academic who wrote about uh, post-disaster societies and caremongering and how that sort of works, how there's sort of like an initial wave of support and then it some sort of dissipates. And so I wrote a piece about, you know, what caremongering can and can't do for us saying like, look, lots of communities, racialized communities, black communities, indigenous communities have been practicing caremongering for a long time. Like, us white folks have just pretended we've, that it was just invented when the pandemic started, right? It's like, so let's give ourselves a shake. And that there's a real risk that the movement dissipates when things get really bad, if we're trying to have a sort of mass level movement. Because a sort of liberal society tears folks apart, tears communities apart, pits us up against one another. And so it was this critical piece about what states aren't doing and that they're forcing us to do. But anyways, it got retweeted by Barack Obama and by Justin Trudeau. And it became this moment where, you know, it was getting a lot of attention. And I was thinking two things. One, like, you guys know I'm criticizing you, right? <laughs> so like, it's like when Trudeau marches in, in sort of the climate parade, it's like, yeah, they're marching against you, man. Yeah, or Black and Lives Matter. Exactly. It's like, yeah, you're criticizing you. Uh, but my first thought was like, well, this will help me keep my job. You know, not sort of like I've written a good piece and I'm proud. That, that was the second thought. The first thought was like, oh, good. This helps me keep my job. Um, just as a reminder that, that even once you get these gigs, the hustle sort of never ends. You've like always got to be going. So it's like Unlike the legacy columnist jobs where obviously you can just phone it the fuck in. Yeah, like <laughs> right? Thomas Friedman. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many. The, the Friedman is a great example, and, and there's uh, I remember there used to be this like Thomas Friedman takedown page of this, like a critical scholar student who would just like take him down every week. Uh, yeah, but yes, it, it's you know the young, youngish columnists have got to be hungry. Yeah, so well, say what you will about Thomas Friedman, but he's talked to a lot of cab drivers in a lot of places in the world. <laughs> Like Margaret Wente and gardeners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's a good time that we could finish off with a little bit of current event stuff, but I do have one kind of book related question left for you because like your book uh, is kind of solution oriented in the idea of like, it, for me, it, it seems like you're put like, it's very much like a, you're a collectivist over an individualist at first. Yeah obviously. Um, but a lot of the solutions seem very much along the lines of like, well, you know, if we just work hard to get along better, like if I try to see your side and you try to see mine and whatnot, when you wrote that, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just too jaded in my older age than you guys, but I guess the question I would have for you now is, did you honestly believe that people could do some of the things that you believe think are necessary to get to the world we should to have a proper democracy? And how has the pandemic evolved your mindset of what you were like, like what, what were you thinking when you wrote the book? And how has COVID changed your perception of that and what our ability to maybe sort of do the things you think are necessary? That's a good, that's a great question. And, and if I rewrote the book now, 
I would would keep the core message, but would add a lot of important caveats because I, what I was saying was like, look, step one is we need structural transfers of resources, right? We need, we need you know, material egalitarianism to have good political decision-making. Without that, the individual practices are less likely to happen harder and probably distributed in a way that, that reinforces existing power structures. So the, the material transfer bit is, the, is central. The, the sort of individual practices was a reflection of the psychology literature and of my own practices of what works when people are trying to, in good faith, engage with others. And so one of the things that I always say is these are the things that you can do if you want to be personally better, assuming that we have resources as well, because it's obviously not universally true. But if somebody doesn't want to reciprocate, fuck them right? You don't owe those people your time. You don't owe those people your attention. You don't owe them a good faith conversation if they're just there to troll you or to try to undermine you or to try to, you know, play debate club with you. So it was, so I was arguing for the individual practices within a very particular context. And on top of that, I was saying we, these things ought to exist alongside direct action, Right, alongside a democratic system that has voting, has parliaments, has courts, has protests, has civil disobedience, for instance. Like when what Soden went down uh, just before the pandemic, I was saying, like, look, we should have these good faith critical debates, et cetera, et cetera, but we should also sit on the tracks. You can't deliberate your way out of this, right? There's a place for deliberation, but there's also a place in time for sitting on the tracks and blockading and, and showing solidarity. And so the question is like, how do we balance that? So that was sort of the, I would have made that, if I could rewrite the book, I would make that even more central and, and more clear because that, that is central to what I was trying to argue. The pandemic has reinforced a lot of what I believe in so far as, is you're seeing people, some people adopt heuristics sort of mental shortcuts of, of people they trust to sort out what they should do. And in some ways that's worked really well with, you know, physical distancing, with mask wearing, with getting the vaccine, which I, which I just got myself the other day. And I, I was thinking in my head while I was going there, okay, like what, what are the best practices here? What have I seen from people I trust and, and learn from talking to them? And that was, was the sort of thing I was talking about in the book. It, but I also saw a lot of the uh, manipulative, exploitative practices that produce absolutely misinformed or, and, and disinforming people who are threats to the collective and individual good. And it reinforced how entrenched that systems of misinformation, disinformation, desperation, exploitation are, and how we have to resist them through a system that includes good thinking and good political decision-making, but also includes material resources uh, and direct action. And so I've come away thinking similarly to the two as I did before, but also aware of the fact that I need to communicate it more clearly and, and precisely uh, going forward. But of course, you know, like I said, you learn these things by doing them, right? And uh, uh, when you sit down to write a book, you've got to try to keep 80,000 words in your head and a bunch of different ideas. And, and it's, you know, it's easy to make mistakes or to come up short, which I did in a, in a couple of ways. But the, the key is then learning and then improving and going, you know, doing better going forward. I had a lot of hope going into the pandemic that uh, the 
sort of uh, the problematic aspect of an individualist individualistic society would be very apparent and and that there would be this sort of strong push for a more collective um, way of doing things in Canada in North America in the world are, are you surprised at all or, or what are your thoughts on on sort of the hold that individualism has and sort of like it seems almost like it's digging in its heels right now because um, I don't know if the pandemic's just dragged on too long and people only have so much I care about you for so long um, mm -hmm. but it, it, it does seem right now to me anyways that our individualistic society and the people that are pushing that upon us, like our politicians are really digging in uh, right now and that it's almost winning again and it's scaring me. Yes, I am <clears throat> pessimistic about that. I was briefly, you know, moderately optimistic. I made the mistake of doing that. <laughs> and I, uh, you, you know, we should there. know better at our age, <laughs> but, we, <laughs> but we don't. And, and it's, you know, my, but the plain response to that, the simple response to that is that empire and hegemony will always um, have an advantage and will always struggle to self-maintain. And the handmaidens of empire and hegemony you know, mainstream politicians, small L liberal politicians, which includes conservatives, will uh, will serve that. And even when they seem to be opposing it, they're probably just serving it. And a good example of that is Janet Yellen and the G7 right now trying to adopt a minimum uh, corporate tax rate for, for their countries, which I support. I mean, that's a good policy. But it's clearly uh, an attempt to maintain the legitimacy of the current system, right? Because they realize that people are, are pushing back against globalization uh, and its exploitative practices. They realize that people are pushing back against corporate um, depredation. They realize that people are feeling now that the system is rigged because, spoiler, the system is rigged. And so rather than saying, well, maybe we should tear down this system they say, well, maybe we should, you know, fix the system slightly somehow. higher taxes. Right. right. Uh, and so that's what I'm seeing. And the pandemic was this moment where we had to sort of look and say, has this system served us well? And the answer is obviously no. I mean, the answer is actually it's, it serves some people very well. It serves some people pretty well. It served a lot of people very poorly structurally. And we decided when we're going to quote unquote build back better. We're going to do the same thing, but we're going to try to, you know, soften the edges a little bit, diversify the CEOs, right? And so that, that the sort of oppressors are more diverse in the boardroom. And uh, it, it speaks to the power of the system to maintain itself, even in the face of serious criticism. Well, and just the people within the system sort of like our like our slavery to the system perpetuates the system like we yes. can't it doesn't seem like we can get ourselves out of that and i actually like just had a little bit of hope maybe not a ton but some in the beginning that we would come out of this and see like you know how like it matters that my next door neighbor has proper health for my health equate mm -hmm. that to literally everything else and we have we've figured this out guys and people should have been like oh yeah that makes sense like if he has no money or no food or no education that matters to me that that makes a difference on the well on the well-being of me as well 
So like to me, yeah. like it, the collectivism is the best thing for an individualist, but anyway. And community. And I often say, you know, the, the thing that I share with conservatives, for instance, is an appreciation for the need for community. We might conceive of it differently, but you know, community is central to life and we liberalism undermines community. And you know, one of the struggles that, that I think we have to have on, on the socialist left is that, that we have to dismantle systems at the same time that we, we shouldn't you know, give into accelerationist techniques that are gonna chew people up and spit them out. And on Twitter the other day, I was talking about uh, residential schools and, and uh, colonialism and someone came, you know, popped into the thread and said, do you think Canada is a, a legitimate state? And my first response was like, obviously he's setting me up for something. Right. And I, I, I could see where it was going, but I said, you know, I'm going to, so I'm going to engage in good faith to uh, try to explain myself because other people are watching. He might not change his mind. He may never agree with me, but other people will see this. And so I said, uh, morally, no, it's a genocidal state. It's a colonial state. It's, it's founded on those two things and on dispossession and it's morally illegitimate it's legitimate in the sense that we've adopted a state system that is tautological that says that these existing states are legal by virtue of existing so therefore they're they're legitimate but that's that's meaning that's as true as it is meaningless right and you know he said he came back and said well if you think the state is illegitimate then why do you want to expand it like, shouldn't you want it to collapse? And at first I was like, this is such an irritating, you know, like we should improve society so much. And yet you participate in society, you know, <laughs> moment. And I was like, but, you know, there is something we need to grapple with here, which is that to the extent that we do expand the state, uh, we and, and do adopt things that I want to adopt, including paid sick worker, you know, uh, publicly owned bus systems, pharmacare you are entrenching the state. And so, you know, intellectually we do have to grapple with the fact that there is a state here that we need to talk about land back, that we need to talk about reconciliation, um, but that we do have a state entity that we have to deal with and work with and, and within because it is here. And even those of us who are deeply critical of states as states themselves, as structures, uh, still do want to, don't want to say, well, let it collapse and let everybody, you know, figure it out after, right? Because it's like saying, well, I, I don't care if my neighbor has access to these resources or programs or whatever, right? And, and so it is something that, that I was trying to work out in the context of, of looking at these programs that are designed to prop up the state hegemony, but that are actually good too, right? Well, there's obviously, there's obviously systemic issues that linger within our system, like within our governments and whatnot, like racism and all kinds of things. But everyone is, people are still like, you know, indigenous communities are also subject to the same limitations of our state that we are all subject to, right? Like the limitations right. of the state are a problem for people too. So it's not about like this idea that we should, I hate that argument, like, well, then why should we expand the state or whatever? Why do, why do you want big government if you think that it's the control or the way they're handling it is wrong? Well, it's, you could have an expanded state that properly cares for people and isn't corrupt and all kinds of things if you structure exactly. it the right way. Exactly, and saying that the state is illegitimate is not a 
it, it's a factual claim. And I mean, it has normative implications, but it is first and foremost a factual claim. And I responded to, to one of the guys I was talking to and said, uh, do you think it is legitimate to create a state by dispossessing people and murdering them? And the conversation ended there. But I want to play it out real quick. I mean, if you think the answer is yes, then obviously you think the basis of legitimacy is violence. And by the way, you could apply that to this moment right now and justify current violence, right? Because when does it end? But if you think the answer is no, which I do, then the question is, when did Canada become legitimate? If, it, if, the, if the territory was, uh, was based on through, through the British and the French, illegitimate, fundamentally illegitimate crimes, which it was, at what point did it become legitimate? And my argument is at no point, at no point. You know, time doesn't render these crimes uh, legitimate. It doesn't render them okay. And if we accept that, but we also accept that the state structure is here, then I think we have a serious conversation to have what we're gonna do about that. The fact that it's still fundamentally morally illegitimate, even if we create these legal superstructures that say it's okay. And that's where uh, one of the paths I take to saying, let's talk about land back, let's talk about reconciliation, let's talk about using the state, which is fundamentally morally illegitimate for ends that are good and just. And I don't think that's inconsistent. In fact, I think it's morally necessary. Right, because there's there's a distinction between the Canadian state as it is, as it was created, and then states writ large, which can be used for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If, if we tame them to. And, and if we collectively uh, control them, right? If we did, you know, if we distribute power and decision-making power and resources within them, uh, not just politically, but economically. You know, yesterday on Twitter, I was sort of, every so often I tweet the same or a very similar thread, which is if you're writing about democracy and, and de- democratic reform, and you're not writing about the economy and power, then you're not writing about democracy and you're not writing about democratic reform, right? And you, we need to accept that there are these structures that are here, even if we want to resist them and change them. And the fact that we can mobilize them towards good ends. But, you know, it's, it, in this country, we, we don't talk about class and we don't talk about power and we don't t- think of, of democracy and the economy as being fundamentally bound up in a power relationship with one another. And it, I find it really irritating. And our sort of intellectual class in this country leaves a little something to be, to be desired in many cases. And our you know, punditry media commentary class is uh, just fundamentally weak. Uh, there, with some notable exceptions, especially among young folks, but it, it's a problem that contributes to these misunderstandings. Did the NCAA- never that, not that I'd ever speak ill of my colleagues. <laughs> Me neither. Did did this most recent so this the story out of Kamloops and this discovery of the this remains of these two hundred fifty? Did that get us any closer to uh, a proper approach to reconciliation? Do you think because like. Um, one thing right off the bat, like I, like among all Canadians, I was like angered and shocked and all kinds of things. Right. And then not too long into a conversation on Twitter, somebody sent me a story from CBC from 2019, where they found the remains of 15 or more kids at the East central Saskatchewan residential school. That was, I think the longest running one, 1997, it closed. And I started to feel shame because like fuck being angry right now, like. 
how many did it take for me to give a shit, right? Like two years ago, it's 15 kids and it's not this big news and we're not having tributes. We're not having moments of silence. Right. And now it's two 15 and everybody's like, Oh, well we, we get it now. We get it now. Right. And I'm watching hockey games and there's, you know, but like they have these tributes and things like that. But then I see, I see this tribute for these kids followed by, having some member a member of the first nations community sing oh canada immediately after the tribute and i feel like maybe we still don't quite get it i don't know like do you feel like we're actually gonna make strides here or are we just doing our typical hold up our hands light a candle fucking in two weeks we're gonna we got stampede to do or whatever yeah i i would defer to indigenous communities to to decide you know whether or not what we're doing is is adequate i mean as as a judgment i would would also sort of as an observation say we have a tendency in this country to do symbolic stuff because it's cheap and easy and then when the rubber hits the road we kind of like well you know it's up to the courts right <laughs> we're going to fight in the courts which the liberal government is doing on a couple of files and which is being resisted by among other people uh, cindy blackstock who uh, I would recommend the folks as a, as a strong source. And so I, I, you see settlers having to think about this and having to confront it. And I think that is important. You know, we settlers have to look this, look at this, look at our history, look at ourselves, decide what we want to do, what we want to be. Do we want to tear down the statues? I think we should. Do we want to rename the schools, the streets? I think we should. Do we want to have these commemorate uh, commemorations? I think we should have them. Uh, but what's the substance look like? And well, and will we hold our politicians to account at the ballot box in the streets through letters when they fail to live up to the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, when they fight Indigenous kids in court on an ongoing basis, when they say they're not responsible for cultural genocide or liable for cultural genocide in Kamloops at the Indian resident, uh, residential school? Like, will we actually say this is an issue we care about so much that we will vote for someone else or not vote at all or take to the streets or write letters? Like, will we substantively engage? And and will governments hear that and do something about it? Or when, you know, or, or when they try to ram a pipeline through and an indigenous community says, no, thank you. Well, will we put our money where our mouth is? Or will we sort of say, oh, well, that's different. Or that's just more complicated, which is always a bullshit way to say that I want to uphold the status quo because it serves me well. See it's, also Israel-Palestine. It's provincial jurisdiction. It's provincial jurisdiction. <laughs> do you, do you, uh, did, did you see Dale Smith's defense of fighting uh, indigenous uh, children in court? Yeah. So, uh, you know, D Dale, uh, I've talked to Dale about this sort of thing in the past. And he is a sort of, you know, staunch defender of one conception of, of federalism and of the Constitution. And I see where he's coming from. But I, I disagree with him because we routinely, uh, you know, quote unquote, break the rules of federalism or, a, or, or jurisdiction as its plain text reading is found in the Constitution, the BNA Act or the 1982 Act uh, to get things done. Right. So like the, the response to my response to that is, yeah, sure, there is all kinds of jurisdictional um, caveats, but when we want to get something done, we get it done. Uh, 
And when we, uh, so the jurisdictional thing often doesn't hold up w with the actual sort of like argument the federal government is trying to make in, in the um, case of fighting indigenous kids in court, uh, that isn't just about them wanting to do it differently and pay out in a different way. It's about them wanting to also control who is included in compensation. If you look at Cindy Blackstock's work and the briefs that, that her and her organization have filed, you see that the government is trying to limit their liability and limit the reach of the claim here. And that's, um, it's a really deeply offensive move. But this is the old, this is the oldest story of the federal government when it comes to indigenous people fighting them in court is they wanna limit their responsibility and their liability, even in the face of, of treaties, which, which say otherwise. It's just greasy and uh, abhorrent stuff, but it's, it's as old as the, as the country itself. So it doesn't surprise me. So the thing I'm looking to see is, will, will the substantive stuff change and will settlers stand with indigenous folks as allies and insist that they do instead of going to the ballot box and saying, well, I'm just gonna vote for this guy because he's not Stephen Harper, right? And I'm worried that that's not gonna happen. Yeah, it interests me that in Canada, it seems like um, liberals are the constitutional originalists. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think in Canada, everybody uses the Constitution to try to, to obfuscate and, and to weasel out and to hide behind things. But, you know, when we want to do something as a country, liberals included, they will find a way to, to make it work. And, and that might be, you know, fighting it in court and saying, no, no, this is within our jurisdiction. For instance, the carbon tax, which I think is true, by the way, I support that. Or they will say, okay, well, we're just going to fund it. You know, it's not our jurisdiction, but here's a bunch of money. Who's going to say no, right? That's, a, that's the federal uh, health model or the national health model. That's the, that would be the childcare model. That would be the pharmacare model. The federal government spends into provincial jurisdiction all the time, right? And we wouldn't have Medicare as it is if they didn't. So it's such a bogus argument. It's just a question of, and so that's why I don't like the jurisdictional argument as gatekeeping. And it gets used by politicians and journalists to, to, to gatekeep. But I, I think we should be more imaginative than that. Now we got about five minutes left, Jeremy. Do you want to talk cancel culture? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Cause you <clears throat> wrote a piece recently. I think it's your most recent piece, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. In the Washington post about a, um, TDSB, Toronto District School Board, uh, anti-racism educator who was sharing uh, information about the situation in Palestine and Israel with educators who had opted into it. And uh, you, you say a newspaper columnist in the piece. Did you, I, I would imagine you didn't name them on purpose. Yeah. I, I linked to uh, Sue Ann Levy's article, one of her articles in the, in the Sun, because when I'm writing pieces, I, I like to cite as much as I can. And so I linked to it. So I wasn't hiding it right. in the sense that, it, it, you know, you, you could easily find out it was her I was talking about, even through clicking on the links in the piece. I didn't want to give her any more oxygen than, than she already had. I just, I didn't want her to do her the kindness of naming her because I was so appalled by her columns uh, and 
which which again i was you know you my argument is that this is to the extent that quote-unquote cancel culture exists it is not the left saying uh we you know saying jordan peterson's and that you know these people shouldn't be saying these things it is it is typically folks on the right who are trying to get people on the left fired for saying things that are true and the piece uh, sue ann's i think was her first piece included a quotation from um uh, from the head of uh, benai breath calling for the educator to be uh, investigated and removed and uh, my argument was this is canceled this is this is trying to cancel quote unquote an educator who was doing his job now you might not like that that it was his job you might not like the materials he shared but i think the materials are important to balance the conversation and i think by and large they were i mean i i went through them all when i was writing the piece a couple of times um you know there were things i would push back on a little bit here and there there were characterizations i would get into but i think fundamentally the resources were right and they more importantly they were an important part of, of the conversation and when people sort of scream back well where's the balance my response is like everywhere else <laughs> i when i was at the university of ottawa i had a friend who was the head of the women's resource center and people would come into the the women's resource center and say to her where's the men's resource center and she would say take two steps out of here and it's everywhere else <laughs> it's yeah. literally everywhere except for this tiny room in the university of ottawa and i feel the same way about israel palestine some people say well where's the balance my response is it's fucking everywhere it's in every newspaper every blog every column every radio station every television station every guy talking at tim hortons every mcdonald's breakfast club of senior <laughs> citizens it's there. And you've got this educator who is an anti, you know, racist educator, anti-colonialism educator, who's trying to educate teachers who provides a couple of emails with resources. And people are like, well, it's not balanced. And I, to me, it was absolutely absurd. And then he needs to be fired. And I, I, you know, obviously had to defend him because it was the right thing to do. And I got an awful lot of mail from people. I got two pieces, pieces of mail critical, including one that snitch tagged my editors but a whole ton of them from, from educators and others who were thanking me uh, for, for standing up for, for Javier and, uh, and for making this argument. And it, uh, it, it stunned me a little bit because you know, they kept saying no one is doing this. And it reminded me of how weaselly our media is, that yeah. you, know, you weren't having more people doing this work. And well, it goes to show that that's the balance. There's your balance right there. Yeah, well, in the Canadian media, Israel's always defending itself. Even even in when Israel's being criticized, it's always in the context of they're acting in self defense. They're just going a bit too far, right? So, to 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 suggest that an anti racist educator's job is to perpetuate this is, um, you know, at best completely misguided. Um, now, I believe he was brought on last year in, in response to the black. Lives Matter um, movements to help um, do anti-racism education. Am I? Do I have that right? The email has been around for years. Oh, okay. uh, I, I I don't know if, if something might have changed in in how the the thing was working, but there's been mailouts for for a long time. I mean, he he's been and he's been with the board for, I think it was 
12 years or something like that. I mean, this guy didn't come out of nowhere. People know who he is. He's been doing this sort of work for a long time. And, you know, the, the head of the director of education has been copied on all these emails. Uh, they've seen there's an interim director now, but the previous director was, was on the, the list too. It was, it was there. And you, you could, you know, it wasn't, this should have been expected. And again, I, I go back, you mentioned the opt-in point. I go back to this critical point because it's central. <clears throat> this was an opt-in mail out for teachers. This wasn't, you know, e- emailing stuff to students. Teachers could use their own discretion. So it also infantilizes teachers. It says, well, they can't use their own judgment. You know, they, they don't have the capacity to decide for themselves what's, what's appropriate for the classroom and what's not. And it's just such a bizarre double standard. And of course, all the old tropes know like this is anti-Semitic. Let me be very clear to say that anti-Semites can go straight to hell. Anti-Semitism is, is a problem. It ought to be resisted. We need to build solidarity across a resist, you know, cross-resistance solidarity against anyone who promotes hate against um, uh, peoples or, or who, who attack individuals based on ethnicity or religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we also need to be very clear that anti-Zionism or criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. And the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism has set us up for this problem. And at the time, lots of folks warned that this was going to happen, including a number of progressive Jewish organizations and individuals. And so this problem was clearly seen. They were weaponizing anti-Semitism to try to shut down criticism of Israel. Now it's playing out. And it's a serious problem. Isn't criticism of Israel like legitimately in the United States, isn't it like legally at this point considered anti-Semitism? Haven't they made some sort of a official uh, yeah, declaration it, that like even saying bad things about Israel is anti-Semitic? Uh, yeah, that's the IRA definition that David's yeah. referring to, which was passed by the Trump administration. And then uh, the progressive Democrats who vote against it, like Rashida Tlaib, who under that definition is like anti-Semitic for existing. Um were accused of voting against condemning anti-Semitism when it was a specific politically motivated definition of anti-Semitism, which is being rammed down our throats by pro-Israel lobby groups who claim to represent every Jewish person, um, and they don't. Um, but I, I wanted to bring it back to Sue Ann Levy because I do think she's a uniquely repugnant figure in Canadian media, like, and that's saying a lot. Um, because uh, th- this person that the TDSB is throwing their educator under the bus to appease fabricated a story about refugees staying in a hotel in Toronto slaughtering goats to demonize them was reprimanded from the National uh, News Media Council or whatever that body's called and still has a job, still is, uh, you know, on her crusade against people of color. And I think that, um, you know, I, 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 I thank you, David, for bringing this to the attention of a, you know, very broad audience because it is an absolute abomination and I, I mean, what, what made you decide to write about it for, for, for the Washington Post, you know, to, to sort of um, um, present it to a more international audience? Well, I mean, it's funny because sometimes when I write, people will say, well, this is the National Post saying something. 
and it's typically because they want the the sort of credibility and the yeah. clout of the paper right and for me it's just going to work it's just sort of where i write and when i'm pitching something and thinking of a column length uh, argument it the first place i go to always is my home and that's the post and so the question then becomes, well, why did I want to write it in the first place? And it was because I saw uh, what I thought was a, a, an injustice. And I thought it wasn't going to get the attention it deserved and that maybe I could do a little something to bring some light and some balance to, to the case. And when I think of the job of, of a columnist or a commentator or even anybody day to day it 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 includes especially a columnist um speaking truth to power it's an old cliche um never punching down but frequently punching up <laughs> you know to try to to balance the scales and to hold power to account and uh, if if you're not as a columnist looking out for for perspectives and individuals and cases where um, people are being uh, treated poorly or oppressed, then I don't know what you're doing. And, and one of my big critiques of the Canadian media space, especially since it's so old and so white, is that there's all these aporias. They're just not, they don't see these things even. They don't even think about them. They're not on their radar. And uh, I, I work hard to make sure these things are on my radar and that I can boost folks when it's appropriate to boost them. I can, you know, direct some flack my way when it's appropriate to do that to sort of direct away from them, and when I can write in support of them, uh, when I can do that. And one of the things I do when I'm about to write is ask myself a couple of questions. You know, does this need to be written? Does this need to be written right now? Does this need to be written by me right now? <laughs> and if I can answer yes, yes, yes to those, then I'll do it. And then, and then, of course, always the final question is, you know, is this punching up or down? And if it's down, it's a no. If it's, up, if, if it's up, it's a yes. And this certainly fit all those criteria. And uh, I, I do hope, I mean, the, the, as of recording, it's still under, he's under review, he's on home assignment. But I do hope that the TDSB has seen the response and knows that we're watching them and, and does the right thing. But either way, he's already been punished. He's been dragged through this. And he has been investigated, which is in and of itself a tactic of control and punishment. And I think they ought to be held to account for that, the TDSB. Now we have to wrap up, but I just wanted to ask you one really quick thing about while we're on this subject, because obviously a lot of what she's writing and what is just rooted in this idea that Israel can do no wrong and anyone against Israel or says anything bad about Israel is therefore bad. But And forget the race part and everything like that. What do you just make of a columnist going after a private citizen in this way? Like, I probably call for the cancellation of public figures on a weekly basis in my column, right? Like, if you're, if you're a public figure, you're fair game to me. I, I would, as a columnist, be very, very, very careful about going after a private citizen, even a piece of shit private citizen, like, uh, I don't know, Stephen Campbell in Medicine Hat, for example. <laughs> well, he is running for council. So. Right, right. So well, if I hope he wins, because then he's in my world. But anyway, <laughs> um, but but anyway, what, what do you like, to me, that's, 
uh, with everything else aside, that might be just the most deplorable act, just from a call, like a journalistic standpoint, a columnist standpoint, to me, that breaks a lot of rules. How, what are your thoughts on that just as a whole? I, 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 so I, I don't sort into public private so much as I sort into punching up, punching down. I mean, there are lo like lots of CEOs who are private citizens. I'm like, okay, well, you're fair game. <laughs> right, right. You're in the public space. It's in the public interest to get into this. I, you know, my, my conception of the public interest is conditioned by whether or not it's bullying. And if it's bullying uh, folks, individuals who are you know oppressed or individuals who can't properly defend themselves or then then it's anathema to me if it's like bullying powerful people i have less of a problem that, right <laughs> yeah cyberbullying works yeah like i there are some people Sometimes. i'm like okay you're fair game because you because of, of your position vis-a-vis -vis power and so I, I think of it in terms of power and punching up punching down more than public private but but i do think it is inappropriate to target uh, an individual like Javier and, and including Javier uh, for doing the job that they were doing. Um, I, I suppose it would be justified on the grounds that he is an educator, but I, you know, I think if you're that concerned, you can write a private letter to the board. Doing writing a column about it is a very different thing. And I think this, I'm, I'm saying this as a general point to all columnists and to all people who have a platform, whether it's a formal column or, or a, a big following on social media or whatever it might be, be very, very careful and conscious of what you do when you drag someone into your ambit, because that is not just, those aren't just words, it's an act. And it's going to, it's going to affect that person's life and it might affect that person's life in very serious in very negative ways and you you owe a duty to yourself you know a duty to the public you own a you owe a duty to your outlet you owe a duty to those individuals to be very conscientious about how you use that power and it's something i think about a lot and it's something i would implore uh, other columnists and people with a platform to think about as well great place to wrap up i think jeremy right yeah, I'll say. I mean, there's lots more we could talk oh, we about, but that just day, means but... you'll have to join us again, David. Oh, I would fun. absolutely love to. Well, listen, I, honestly, we had a really great time and we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, when I threw out the tweet at you from the podcast account a couple of weeks ago, it was like, well, we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll say yes. And you're like right away or like, yeah, sweet. So um, you're our kind of guy because you you do what we do, and uh, so uh, we're fans. Um, I, I will say one thing that you're so. I think you're maybe at times too polite to uh, uh, some of the uh, people um, <laughs> you uh, criticize and have disagreements with. Uh, I'm actually. I'll, I'll say this really quickly. I'm closing. I'm actually like very nice, but also I I hate conflict. I've picked a stupid. <laughs> job maybe but I actually like I really want to be conciliatory and I hate conflict but then there's moments where I lose it I'm like fuck it let's go for it let's but do yeah this. I do kind of defer to can, politeness that well can, can I, I tell you this was actually really good um a moment I saw when I was like David's being a bit too polite but he, he, it, it was well played when uh Terry Glavin said that uh the NDP needs to kick out all the tankies and you were just like, uh, I'm not sure the party that removed socialism from its constitution uh, years ago has too many, uh, uh, you know, orthodox Stalinists in its ranks. The 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 NDP is is a liberal party. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, people people forget this because they're the left party in the country, but they are a small L liberal party. They're not. They they have you know sort of social democratic bits, but they are still fundamentally liberal in lots of ways. And I don't I don't think they are. You know, whenever people criticize the NDP, as being like, hey, these are far left, Stalinist, dangerous, tanky extremist i'm like boy if only they were like a fraction of what people think they are <laughs> right. Right. Well, well i think to like, i don't self identify as a communist but i i i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a market socialist which is a conversation we have a different time but but i'm like i wish they were the socialist behemoth people think they are Half be great. of the socialism. Yeah, well, I think to uh, Terry Glavin, anyone who opposed the Iraq war is a neo-Stalinist. So. All right, the producers, yeah, yeah. the producers all over me here. You guys, we're getting out of here. David, I appreciate you coming on. Jeremy appreciates you coming on. Mo appreciates us stopping now. But uh, <laughs> we honestly, please come back and uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. We love your stuff, and uh, yeah, can't say enough good things. Well, thank you awfully. I would absolutely love to. And thank you for having me. Appreciate it, David. This is the time in the show where we thank those of our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we ever hope for. To Nicola, D. Nicola, to Chris Sterwold. Sorry about your Oilers, my friend. And to Dave <laughs> Von Miller. You guys are the best. We really appreciate all the support. To the rest of our patrons and to all of our listeners, cannot thank you guys enough. We're humbled by it every week. Um, really appreciate you guys coming here. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. See you then. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, all.